360 degrees. High high, 360 degrees. High high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. High high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. Tonight, we are featuring stories of indigenous resistance. Across Turtle Island, a.k.a. North America, and around the world, Indigenous people are fighting for their rights and sovereignty. On tonight's show, we'll hear sounds from a raid that was conducted on a Wet'suwet'en camp in British Columbia, set up to oppose the coastal gas link pipeline, cutting through their traditional unceded territory. We'll also hear an interview with one of the women land defenders that was arrested in that raid. Later, we'll get an update on the proposed lithium mine near the Oregon-Nevada border at Thacker Pass, a.k.a. Pahimaha. We'll also have a tribute to one of our media heroes, Ahoba Shinami, a.k.a. Myron Dewey of Digital Smoke Signals. And we'll be asking for your support for this critical radio station, KPFA, and the First Voice Apprenticeship Program as part of our holiday fundraiser. That's tonight on Full Circle. I am your host tonight, Free Will and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch, that's Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked right here to KPFA. All right, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Freewell and Franklin, and I am your host for the hour. And before we get started, I want to dedicate tonight's show to Ahoba Shinami, a.k.a. Myron Dewey. Award-winning filmmaker Myron Dewey passed away Sunday, September 26th at 49 years old in a tragic car accident in Yomba, Nevada. Myron was a professor and he was a master at using social media, media and technology combined with indigenous wisdom. He would use these skills and knowledge to benefit his people, the earth and the environment. The day before the accident that took Myron's life, he was documenting the Navy's bombing range in his homeland in the ancestral land of the Paiute and Shoshone people in what is today known as Nevada. So to get us started tonight, let's kick off the show with this tribute to Ahoba Shinami, a.k.a. Myron Dewey. First, you'll hear a short tribute I wrote coming from me in my heart, stemming from the time I met him at Standing Rock in November of 2016. Then you'll hear an audio tribute in Myron's own words, in excerpts from an interview I recorded on Media Hill at Standing Rock in November of 2016, as Myron shared his thoughts on technology, native wisdom, teaching as a professor, and independent media. Check it out. 
This is Freewell and Franklin, and this is my tribute to Myron Dewey. I went to Standing Rock, where I met a lot of people, a lot of them working together towards mutual goals. And that's also where I met you, Myron Dewey. You were flying drones and teaching people how to fly drones. You would fly them so far no one could see them. Everyone gathered around you and was amazed at your flying objects. But it wasn't until later that we would learn how really amazed we would be when we all saw the footage of the destruction and desecration in progress. Your videos showed us what they were doing to the land, the water, and what they were doing to us. Your words taught us what we can do about it and how to stand up and use our voices, technology, and wisdom to protect our Mother Earth. Thank you, Ahoba Shanami, a.k.a. Myron Dewey. This is Free Will and Franklin. I leave you with these words from Myron himself, recorded November 2016 on Media Hill in Standing Rock. tribe, Bishop Paiute tribe, and the owner of Digital Smoke Signals. My English name is Myron Dewey. Ahobachinami is my Paiute name. Strong thinker. My background is a historical trauma trainer. I use social media and film, and also I'm a professor. Um, I taught at Northwest Indian College. And so, you know, coming in and working with the youth for the last 20 years has been uh, what's, I, you know, I've, I've been in their position. I've been in those hard times and alcoholic family and uh, run-ins with the law when you're young, you know, when you don't have that guidance. And I've always wanted to give the youth what I never had. And which is an uncle or a mentor. Drones have been just, a, I, I guess, they're minute in my, in my opinion because it's just a tool. Um, my drones have been shot down, you know, illegally, which we know that. And, uh, but it's documented what they have been doing all the way from their signals on the top of their cars to their maneuvers and their military action, their um, corporate military action from one side is the Dakota Access Pipeline is corporate military action. The sheriff's also corporation is, is untrained militarized. The drones have documented these mercenaries going over and being deputized in ways where they're fully covered. You can't see who they are. When I see them stuttering, when they're talking to me, I, I got them. I know I got them intellectually. And I just let them incriminate themselves. And uh, I don't try to be sarcastic to them or anything like that. I want to educate them and let them know what they're doing is wrong. And hopefully I can touch their spirit in a way where they're, they're, if they're not listening, their spirit's listening. That's what's the most important part. 
And as I started to document every officer, every FBI agent, and even the DAPL security, we started to see that, you know, something's going on here. That's when we see in the militarization and cooperation. And then later on, no one believed me when I told them it was National Guard as well. And so I had to start going on night actions and filming them as well, working together. There's a fear factor that I've lost. And a few years ago, that fear factor was when I almost died. And I realized that that's helped me here because I know it's a beautiful death on the other side. I've witnessed that as uh, my own experience. So by being there with these guys, you know, it's, it really just made me have compassion for them and try to educate them and empower them on why we were here, no matter what they said, what they did, how they treated me. And that's been my role here is to educate and empower and articulate the scenario that we're seeing with uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline and what that means to the indigenous people that's going through here, but also what that means back home to our own people that are following. Well, what we're doing today is training, training other drone pilots. Uh, a few days ago, I did an indigenous women's training, and I want to give the drone to a native filmmakers, a group, you know, that are going out there to protect and, but most important, articulate the narrative here, the visual legal narrative in a good way. And so I want to empower our native filmmakers to go out and uh, not break the, break the law, but break the rules and what they're doing. And we're breaking the rules here. And we're doing it by articulating the FAA regulations, FCC regulations, spectrum, tribal airspace, sovereignty, inherent sovereignty. I've had to stay in, in not just prayer, but transparency. So we have a clear painted picture of what's happening. And the drones were going live there for a while before they did the media blackout. And are gonna to continue to go live and share the story, even if it means, you know, that people are going to jail every day to protect the water. So there's many factors that go into play here. It's an intellectual battle, and we're intellectual warriors, and we're articulating technology through indigenous eyes. So, you know, we, we have, uh, we're, we're in prayer here, we're in healing together, and uh, I think it's one of the most spiritual places that I've ever been to collectively that a lot of people now have the remedy for post-traumatic stress. It's here, standing in unity and solidarity together and laughing and singing and eating together. It's beautiful. Welcome back. You are tuned to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. I am your host tonight, Free Will and Franklin, and you were just listening to a tribute to Professor Myron Dewey, also known as Ahoba Shanami, strong thinker. 
He was killed this past September in a tragic car accident in a head-on collision on a two-lane highway near his hometown in Nevada. I recorded that interview as part of the KPFA crew that traveled to Standing Rock in November of 2016 to record personal stories and interviews with indigenous people and their allies on the front lines of the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline. That was actually only about five minutes of a 25-minute interview that first aired on Flashpoints in November of 2016. Accompanying the words of Myron Dewey was the drum and voices of the Cherry Creek Singers and the No Dapple song that became basically the title track to the Standing Rock and No Dapple movement. I will post a link to both the full-length interview with Myron Dewey and the Cherry Creek Singers on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. Again, that's kpfaapprentice.org. And again, let me just say that I was able to go along as part of the KPFA crew because of the skills and the knowledge of technology I was given as part of the KPFA First Voice Apprenticeship Program. And I say given because it was free to me. Right now, KPFA and the Pacifica Network are asking for your support. If you are able to take a moment at this time to make a donation, please head over to kpfa.org and click on that Donate tab. You could also call 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. And we just heard Myron Dewey himself as he talked about the importance of technology and independent media and journalists. KPFA was a station that featured the voices of Standing Rock on a regular basis. We actually traveled to the, to the Dakotas to speak with indigenous frontline activists and sent back daily reports. Give us a click if you can, or give us a call right now, 1-800-439-5732 or kpfa.org. In fact, we are offering tonight to anyone that donates any amount the Storytelling for Social Change Special Holiday Edition, which includes video talks from KPFA's online events with poet Nikki Giovanni, also Chris Hedges on Teaching in America's Prison, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz on her book, Not a Nation of Immigrants, and KPFA's own Mitch Jezerich on the History of Democracy. This will go out to a link to everyone that donates in their confirmation email. One last time, the number 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Or one of the best ways to donate and help us out is to go to kpfa.org and click on that donate tab. Again, thanks everyone for making that click or making that call. We really appreciate it. But let's get on with our show tonight because I am very excited and I'm also honored to be bringing you this next story and interview. Many people recently viewed footage of another raid on Wet'suwet'en people's territory in dramatic footage released by documentary filmmaker Michael Teledano on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! Video shot from inside a tiny home protest camp showed Royal Canadian Mounted Police and armed military soldiers breaking down the door with axes and chainsaws to arrest land defenders at gunpoint who were inside. 
members of the Wet Sweat Nation set up a checkpoint to block access to the coastal gas link workers on unceded tribal territory. Acting on orders of an injunction handed down by the courts in Canada, the RCMP and military task force arrested Wet'suwet'en women and journalists and destroyed their camp in an attempt to clear the way for coastal gas link work to proceed. Let's go to that dramatic audio taken from the video released by documentary filmmaker Michael Teledano. No, it does not. You, it doesn't matter under the injunction. Learn the f law. No, I don't understand anything. I'm going to enter under the authority of the injunction. They're walking to the door. They're breaking it down. They're breaking down the door. Get out here. They're breaking down the door. Okay, show me hand. Get that gun off me. Get your gun off me. Lower your gun. Get your gun off me. This is sovereign with two and ten. CMP have breached the door. They are acting under the authority the, of the, the injunction. The attack dogs are there. There are attack dogs here. Standing there, right beside the door. Police. They used axes found in camp to break down the door. And a chainsaw. And a chainsaw that they found in Can camp. Can we roll you under arrest? Don't touch me. Don't Do touch her. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on 94.1 FM KPFA and KPFA.org. I am your host tonight, Freewill and Franklin, and that dramatic audio you just heard was recorded by documentary filmmaker Michael Teledano. It recently made headlines on Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! And that last voice you just heard saying, you're choking me and get your hands off my regalia is that of Shay Lynn Sampson, indigenous land defender from the Gixon Nation. 
Up next, we're going to go to that interview, but I just want to take one moment to remind you that tonight we are raising funds for the 72-year-old first-ever listener-supported radio station, KPFA. At any time during the show tonight or over the next seven days, you can help support this independent media outlet and receive a special gift. Just head over to kpfa.org or call 1-800-439-5732. That's 1-800-HEY-KPFA and make a donation if you are able. And I want to thank you everyone in advance, but let's get on to our interview. In 2018, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced the launch of the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline to carry natural gas from Dawson's Creek in northwestern British Columbia to Kitimat on the western coast, a liquid natural gas port where the gas will then be set for export to Asia. From that point on, what Sowetan people prepared to prevent this? As you heard in that dramatic video moments ago, the fight continues to this day. Let's go to this interview with Shay Lynn Sampson, Indigenous Land Defender, for an update. All right, welcome everyone to Full Circle. This is Freewell and Franklin, and tonight I'm going to be talking about what's happening a little bit above us up in British Columbia, Wet'suwet'en Territory, around the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. Many people have become aware of this story when Pacifica Radio's Democracy Now! broadcast footage of a raid on the cap, uh, the camps in Wet'suwet'en territory that were put up to deny access to coastal gas link to the Wet'suwet'en land and territories. According to Coastal Gas Link's website, the proposed 670-kilometer coastal gas link pipeline will transport natural gas to the approved uh, liquid natural gas uh, Canada facility near Kitmit, and they say that the pipeline route was determined by consulting indigenous landowner and stakeholder input, the environment, archaeological and cultural values, land use compatibility, safety, and constructability and economics. Um, in so doing, in that decision, the pipeline route will cut through the heart of Wet'suwet'en territory. And joining me tonight to talk about what this means for the people up there and the stewards of the unceded territories is Shaylin Sampson. And Shaylin Sampson is an indigenous land defender from the Gixan Nation. She was arrested on November 19th, 2021, during the militarized raid on Wet'suwet'en, Yinta, along with 30 other arrests that happened within a two-day period. Um, she, along with others, were held over a four-day period in police custody before being released under certain conditions, which we will be talking about. Um, first, let me say thank you for taking the time to join us tonight, uh, Shaylin. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And um, also thank you for your work you're doing out there to um, protect uh, the lands uh, for the future generations as well. All right. So let's first talk about, you know, who is and what is Coastal Gas Link. This proposed route, as I mentioned, cuts right through the heart of the Wet'suwet'en territory. Tell us um, what is being protected by you all out there. What is this territory that you are all concerned about? And why are the Wet'suwet'en people against this proposed pipeline project? 
Well, the Wet'suwet'en have 22,000 square kilometers of unceded territory that was defined in the Delgamuth court case that um, came, that finished in 1997. Um, Coastal GasLink is out here planning to destroy Wet'suwet'en territory. They've cleared kilometers and kilometers of the right-of-way where they plan to put the pipeline, which has already had devastating effects on the wildlife and on the environment in this area, as well as they plan to drill underneath the Wadzinkwa, which is the headwaters of the Wet'suwet'en, um, that flows all the way downstream into the ocean. It's also where our salmon come to spawn and many different animals eat depend on that river to survive. It's also the river that we drink water from and survive off of here. And so they plan to drill underneath the river and put all of that at risk and put all of our nations downstream at risk and all of our salmon that come up here to spawn. And so it's incredibly important that we protect this not only for the environment here, but also for the cultural purposes that um, we still come to these lands for. We come here to hunt and to fish and to trap and so it's incredibly important that we we stand here and we protect it. And we also um, show that we're going to uphold Wet'suwet'en law. Uh, the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs decided in the Bachlats, which is the feast hall, that no pipelines would ever go through Wet'suwet'en territory. And so we're here to uphold that. All right. Well, thank you for that. According to Coastal Gas Link's website, Coastal Gas Link has signed agreements with all 20 of the First Nations along the approved route and their quote-unquote elected councils. And they say they are committed to a collaborative approach to working with them. Can you talk about the difference between what you had just mentioned, the hereditary chiefs and the tribal chiefs, and then tell us about how long each has existed and who has the ultimate authority over these unceded territories? Right. Well, the hereditary system has been in place on these territories since time immemorial. Um, the hereditary governance structure is thousands and thousands of years old and has governed these territories since before um, any colonizer or any um, Canadian ever stepped foot on these lands. It, um, it's existed for a very long time. And the, the band councils that you mentioned are uh, tribal councils um, come from the Indian Act that was imposed on Indigenous peoples when um, Canada was formed in order to suppress our governance structures, in order to tear down um, the matrilineal systems that we had in place and the way that we had um, strategic and very in-depth governance structures that have existed for thousands and thousands of years. So um, all in all, the hereditary chiefs have had claims and names that go back to the land for thousands of years. And these colonial structures that have been brought on by the Indian Act and, and through the band council system have no jurisdiction on our traditional territories. And just a quick side question to that. Um, who does the Canadian government negotiate with? Do, are they in talks with hereditary chiefs or do they go straight to the elected, um, the councils put in place? They'll often recognize the band councils that have been put in place and are elected through colonial structures of governance um, rather than going straight to the hereditary chiefs. And I think that's one of the big reasons that we're in this predicament is because they aren't respecting what the hereditary chiefs of these territories are saying and the decisions that have been made um, in upholding Wet'suwet'en law and sovereignty. 
And as far as um, these elected officials and the hereditary chiefs, who recognizes who as the ultimate authority? Um, well, for the band councils that are in place, they, they can have jurisdiction on the reserve system, which is also put in place by the Indian Act. And that's, I think, pretty recognized that they have the jurisdiction to to make decisions within the reserve. But the traditional territories are supposed to be um, under the authority of the hereditary chiefs. OK, and the reserves are the smaller um, type areas like we have down here in my people, the reservation and the yeah. um, traditional tribal lands are more vast and um, large and encompassing more territory. Yeah, exactly. The, the reserve system was put in place to remove us from our traditional territories um, and into smaller areas. And then um, we weren't allowed to leave the reserves without passes or um, allowances from the Indian agents. So it's, it's similar. And is this like a um, a reclaiming of these traditional lands or is this something that has always been happening? I mean, I think the Wet'suwet'en have always been of these territories and have always um, utilized these lands. It's, it's been made more difficult because of the the invasion of the Canadian state and the way that industry has come into these lands. But the Wet'suwet'en people have always been here and they, they've always utilized these lands and cared for these lands. All right. And uh, thanks to this recent footage released by Michael Toledano, which showed the raid on the camp last week, awareness has spiked for the moment and a light has been shined on the violence. Um, and I would say the continued violence that the RCMP and other state forces have imposed upon indigenous people up there. Talk about the Canadian government's use of militarized police and the RCMP. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious what the Canadian state is willing, or what lengths the Canadian state is willing to go to, um, to suppress indigenous peoples and their sovereignty. This is the third year in a row that militarized RCMP have come here to remove indigenous peoples from their territories and to try and suppress the rights that we have to be on our lands. And the threat that that poses to the Canadian state in upholding this infrastructure of oil and gas and as a national identity that they cling to. And there's all this talk about reconciliation and what that means. Um, it, it gets a lot of lip service, but in action, they're still sending RCMP with guns pointed at indigenous people to remove them from their territories. And so um, right now in BC, there's been a state of emergency because of natural disasters that are happening in the south of BC, um, which I'm sure you've heard about. But in the midst of the state of emergency, the government chose to send busloads of RCMP here to instead remove indigenous, peaceful indigenous people. And um, our allies from the territory instead and at gunpoint with canine units and snipers and militarized RCMP rather than helping people that were stranded um, because of natural disasters that are being caused by climate change. And so these disasters are things that Indigenous people have said are coming for a very long time because of the way that the state has abused our land and abused our territory and the way that industry continues to develop without care for our future generations. Definitely. And I have seen that, but I will say that I believe the coverage is really lacking down here um, in the States 
on the severity of what happened. Do you want to just take a minute to tell us what um, some of the disasters that the weather has caused over the um, the past month or so and um, what it means to people up there? Because some major roadways were actually cut off. Yeah, I mean, there there was a lot of major roads that were cut off into Vancouver, so much so that at one point there was there was no way to fully access Vancouver without flying in. And so there's been mudslides and rainstorms and floodings that have caused people to be stranded. There's multiple people who have died in the mudslides on the highways. And so it's it's really tragic what's happening and it's really disheartening to see and also not unexpected to see the way that the Canadian state is prioritizing um, violently raiding Indigenous lands rather than helping people from these climate catastrophes. Thank you for that. And now we've been talking about the raid and what has happened in the past weeks. You were a part of that. So describe what happened to you, what you were doing um, in your um, small cabins, um, how they broke in and arrested people. And then talk about um, what the process was like getting arrested, going through the process and then coming out um, what the conditions are put on a lot of the people. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was arrested on the second day of the raid at Coyote Camp um, in uh, one of the structures that was there. The police had gone in the day before at the Gidimden checkpoint and arrested um, 15 people, and um, including two elders and one media and three legal observers. And so they had some blatant disregard for for what we understand to be these rules that they will follow. We, with like the arrests of media and really suppressing the narrative that that was coming out of there. And then also the arresting of legal observers that are there to document and understand what is happening and to, in order to keep us safe. Um, but when I was arrested on the second day, we were inside a structure at Coyote Camp, which was near the drill pad site where they plan to drill underneath the headwaters. Um, and we were there to protect the waters. And so um, they started helicoptering and um, militarized RCMP and they started surrounding the tiny house that I was in. And then they came and they said that they would be entering um, and that we could leave peacefully. And then we told them that they needed a warrant in order to enter. And they said that they would obtain one. And then they came back a while later and said that they would enter under the authority of the Supreme Court injunction that's in place. Um, and so from there, they they found axes within our camp then that they axed down the door with, and then they found a chainsaw that they also used to further open the door. And then at gunpoint, they arrested each of us one by one um, and then continued to do so by going down to the cabin that was built on the drill site that the chief's daughter, um, Chief Wass's daughter, was living in and they arrested everyone inside there as well and removed them from the territory. Um, after that, they held us for hours and hours without water and without food. Um, and then they transported us um, five hours away the following day, away from our community and away from our territories and our homes and our families, um, which at an earlier date they had said that they wouldn't do. Um, and then they brought us to Prince George where they held us over the weekend. There were multiple people that were held. Um, 20 people were held over the weekend, one from the previous day. Um, I was arrested on Friday and they, I got out on Monday, but a lot of the other folks I was arrested with didn't get out until Tuesday. 
um, the RCMP removed me and Slato Molly Wickham's regalia from us while we were in police custody, uh, which is a violation of our rights as well. Um, they tried to not to deny us access to our lawyer. Um, and then everyone was released on conditions. Um, for me, my conditions were that I have to appear in court, that I must protest lawfully, peacefully, and safely. Um, I must abide by the Supreme Court injunction and I must also, um, or I can only return to the exclusion zone, which is the territory where all the, the Wet'suwet'en camps are, um, for cultural activities, including hunting, trapping, and fishing. Um, and so I think it's really important to talk about that as Indigenous people, how close such a low court and any court is getting to um, our constitutional rights as Indigenous people. We have right to free access to our territories. Um, and also with UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, um, in Article 10 specifically saying that you can't, they cannot forcibly remove Indigenous peoples from their territory. And in BC, UNDRIP has actually been passed into law um, as of t November 2018, right before they invaded Wet'suwet'en territory for the first time. So there's all of these compounding things that are really complicated, but really important to touch on is the way that they are um, preventing people from returning to the territory. I have Wet'suwet'en history in my family, and I come from a Wet'suwet'en band, and so I'm allowed to be back on the territory for cultural purposes, but everyone else that was arrested, including Indigenous peoples that are our allies and relatives from elsewhere, um, aren't allowed to return to the territory whatsoever. And even with Slato, um, Molly Wickham, they <clears throat> uh, tried to prevent her from returning to her home, which is on the territory, and prevent her from, from being able to access the rest of her territory. Um, so it's really dangerous the way that the court is playing God in all of this and trying to decide who is Wet'suwet'en and who is not Wet'suwet'en and who gets to access this territory and who does not. Um, and trying to determine who is part of our community because um, that's something that we do as Indigenous people. We decide um, who is part of our community and who isn't. Definitely. Well, before I get a, um, an update on like pipeline construction and stuff, you mentioned your allies and people that work with you. And I wanted to um, kind of get your take on throughout these movements that we've been seeing throughout Canada, the United States, um, places like Standing Rock. Um, a great part of the fight has come from supporting allies and allyship um, with the Rainbow Coalition of people that uh, make up our actual territories and our supporters and community organizations. Talk about the importance of your non-Native allies and your supporters as you see it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's incredibly important the way that people have have come together in different ways and not just Indigenous people. I mean, Indigenous solidarity is amazing and, and seeing the ways that the, that solidarity is springing up because we know the way that the Nwetsoten are impacted in, in this situation is going to impact all of us. But seeing a way in which allies are standing up um, in ways that historically haven't been the case for Indigenous peoples in Canada, um, it's really amazing to see. I, I was a part of the legislature shutdown that happened in Victoria, uh, the, the legislative building in BC last year. And 
on one day we had over a thousand people show up in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en, which is why we were there um, after the last raid on these territories. And so it's really amazing to see the way that people are showing up and and the way that we have this support that historically hasn't been the case. And and also for for non-white people that are also our allies in showing up, just seeing those lines of solidarity between different struggles and different different ways of being marginalized and, and that understanding of how we need to come together to to defeat this this higher state power that that tries to suppress us as marginalized and oppressed peoples. Um, but we're always stronger together. And I, I'm really amazed to see the way that people are popping up all over the continent and all over the world again to stand up for indigenous rights. Definitely, definitely. And um, before we let you go, um, we've been speaking with Shaylin Sampson. She's an indigenous land defender from the Gixon Nation. Um, and she was arrested on November 19th during the militarized raid on the Wet'suwet'en um, Yinta, the territory, along with um, around 30 other people that happened within that two-day period. And I guess I would just like to get your um, take on what do you want people to know about what's going on up there in Wet'suwet'en territory in British Columbia, and um, what can people do to support you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that people know that this that this fight isn't over and we still need people standing up all over the place for for the Wet'suwet'en and what's going on here. Um, the state can't think that it's okay to come in and remove Indigenous people at gunpoint from their territories, from protecting their traditional territories and being on their land. Um, it's not okay. And last year, the, the country got shut down and that will happen time and time again until people understand that when you try to force through projects without the consent of the indigenous peoples on this territory, that projects will be that projects will not go through. This pipeline will never see fruition. This pipeline will never um, have any natural gas flow through it. And that's really important for people to know. That's really important for investors to know that this isn't going to stop and people are going to be standing up everywhere and the fight on the ground isn't done yet. It won't be done until Coastal Gas Link is no more and leaves with Sotin territory. And so I think if people are throwing down wherever they are, that's amazing. I think if people can come to the Yinta and be up here, that's also great. We need more boots on the ground. We need people to come here because this fight isn't over um, and it's going to continue and we're going to continue to throw down and railways will be shut down, highways will be shut down, legislative buildings will be shut down, anything will be shut down until we as indigenous people and the Wet'suwet'en people are respected and their for their decisions that are their laws within their feast halls. Definitely. Thank you for those words. And um, where can people follow these uh, movements? If you uh, follow Yinta Access on our Yinta underscore access on Instagram, you can go to the Yinta Access website, which is just Y-N-T-A-H access dot com. And there's all the updates um, that you can watch there and follow along and get caught up on on the previous events that have taken place on these territories as well. Definitely. And just for everybody listening, we will have links to all their social media handles on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show tonight. So be sure to go there and check it out. 
Again, that was the voice of Shade Lynn Sampson, indigenous land defender from the Gixon, uh, Gixon Nation, a part of the Wet'suwet'en Territory. And she's been speaking to us tonight about uh, the coastal gas link pipeline and the, um, the blockade that's been going on up there. Be- lastly, I guess before we let you go, what is the state of the pipeline? Is there pipe laid all the way up to your territory and then past it? Um, what is the state of the pipeline in Wet'suwet'en lands? It's in different stages throughout different sections. Within this section, um, there has, I think they're beginning to lay pipe or getting ready to place the pipe in place. And so um, we really don't want that to happen. And people need to know that this pipeline will never go through. And so those pipes, even if they get put on the ground or in place, they'll never have natural gas run through them. Thank you very much, uh, Shaylin Sampson. Yeah, thank you. All right. Welcome back to Full Circle right here on KPFA 94.1 FM and KPFA.org. That was my interview with Shaylin Sampson. She recently was arrested while helping defend unceded Wet'suwet'en territories from the Coastal Gas Link Project a natural gas pipeline proposed to cut through the heart of their traditional territories. Real quick, I wanted to take a moment again to thank everyone who donated to the fund drive to keep KPFA and Pacifica going. A last reminder before I move on to a quick update on a proposed lithium mine in northern Nevada. If it wasn't for KPFA, I wouldn't be able to share these stories as broadly. I wouldn't be able to give the mic over to indigenous land defenders for 20 minutes to share their stories. We need to support stations like KPFA and the Pacifica Network. Please, if you have a moment and are able to give a little, head over to kpfa.org and hit that donate button. I'm going to yell it out one more time for folks in the back. kpfa.org. Keep us on the air in these important times. If you'd like to call in, the number you can call is 1-800-439-5732. And that's 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Thanks again, everyone. You know I'm always grateful for the support we get here at Full Circle. But I want to bring us back now and get this update on the proposed lithium mine that we reported on back in June. This is up in northern Nevada near the Oregon border. This is called the Thacker Pass Lithium Mine. But Fort McDermott, Paiute, Shoshone, and other tribal people near the land call it Pihimaha. Their connection to the land is historical, documented, and sacred, and they have vowed to protect it. According to an NS Energy report, Thacker Pass Lithium Mine is set to be the biggest lithium deposit in the U.S. being developed by Lithium Nevada. They say they expect it to have a mine life of 46 years. This would be an open pit mine, which is really a very destructive type of mine to the environment on a large scale. Let's get this update from our friend and ally, Max Wilbert. Uh, Max is a community organizer and a writer. He is the author of the book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. And Max, 
Max helped launch the Protect Thacker Pass, a.k.a. Pihimuha Camp, on January 15th. Uh, welcome back to KPFA and Full Circle, Max. Great to be here, Franklin. Thank you. So let's just kind of catch up because we only got about 10 minutes tonight. And one thing that we were talking about last time that we talked uh, personally was the cultural mitigation dig is what they call it. Um, when they go out and kind of dig up some of the possibly sensitive sacred areas and um, discover what they find and then um, write the report. Tell us what happened with the cultural mitigation dig. Did that move forward? Um, what happened and what did they find, if anything? We've been able to stop that from happening thus far. Uh, and when I say we, I especially mean uh, the regional tribes who have been opposing the project. Uh, the Reno Sparks Indian Colony and other tribes have hammered the Bureau of Land Management with protests and letters and requests for consultation and meetings uh, to try and halt and stop this planned archaeological dig which uh, I've heard it called uh, paid looting because it would be conducted by a for-profit archaeology company uh, digging up people's ancestors and a sacred site uh, in an act of desecration for money, for profit. Uh, so we've been able to hold that off so far. We expect the BLM to continue to try and push that forward because that is an essential step in developing this Thacker Pass lithium mine. Uh, but we're going to fight that and, uh, you know, every part of this mine, every step of the way. Wow. Congratulations. Um, that's great news. Well, there's been legal challenges. And I think um, besides the protest camp and the um, the people putting their bodies out in the area, there's also been um, a legal battle. Tell us about what's been happening in the court systems. What have you been doing and um, what has been the results? Yeah, there are actually three separate lawsuits against the, the BLM for permitting this project. And when I say BLM, I'm talking about Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter. Uh, three separate lawsuits. One is from local ranchers. One is from a group, a, a coalition of environmental groups. And one is from the Reno Sparks Indian Colony, the Burns Paiute Tribe, and, uh, and a local native group called People of Red Mountain. These lawsuits have been uh, in progress. It's a slow process of, uh, you know, making court filings and waiting for a response from the other side's attorneys and, uh, and fighting back and forth. But one really noteworthy thing that has happened over the past couple months is that the BLM was forced to provide these documents to our lawyers. Uh, and those documents show uh, more violations of the law than we even knew about before this, uh, including among those documents, we found that by the BLM's own definition of consultation with native tribes, they've conducted zero consultation before they issued the, uh, the record of decision, which is the main federal permit for this mine. Uh, by their own definition, zero consultation. So, just recently, uh, about a week and a half or two weeks ago, our attorneys filed a motion in federal court asking the judge to allow them to bring all these new complaints in the lawsuit. Uh, and those complaints alleged that the BLM violated the National Historic Preservation Act, the Archaeological Resources Protection Act, the National Environmental Policy Act, 
the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act and, and possibly a couple others as well. So if the judge allows these new arguments into the courtroom, that could be very helpful uh, because the truth is these courts tend to side with corporate interests. They tend to side with the mining industry and the laws to protect uh, the land and protect uh, culturally significant sites for tribes are not strong enough. Uh, if they were, we wouldn't have to deal with these problems. All right. All those terrible things um, look good uh, for court. Congratulations there. And I hope that um, turns out our way there. And one thing you just mentioned in those lawsuits is that this is kind of a coalition of different folks. You got the ranchers and the tribal members. You've got environmental groups. Sorry. And they're kind of forming a coalition. And one thing we've been trying to do on our show tonight is feature indigenous voices. Now, you are a strong ally that has been alongside tribal members and have been helping a lot. You're not claiming to be a tribal member or try to uh, speak for them. But let me ask you, as an ally um, that is not a tribal member, how do you see the importance of indigenous leadership in these situations and then being a strong ally? I think it's really simple. You know, this is uh, is this is their homeland. Uh, this is the homeland of people who who I've been working with and develop friendships with over the months that we've been fighting this project. Uh, their ancestors are in the ground there. They have uh, a long-standing relationship with this place as a historical site where their own family history has played out, as a culturally significant site that has had some really big impacts on the, the development and the course of their whole culture and whole society. And it's very significant to this day as a place where people go and hunt and gather some medicinal plants and have a direct relationship with that land. So, um, you know, I the first time I went to Thacker Pass or Pahimaha, I didn't know any of that history, but I could feel that there was something really special about the place. I could feel it. And, uh, you know, so I wasn't surprised when um, local Native folks came forward and started telling us uh, the history of the place and started letting us know that this is a sacred site, that it's actually a really significant area. I, I felt that. And I think anyone who goes out there, if they have an open heart and open mind, and they're willing to just go walk out on the land and listen, you know, by themselves without other people with their phone off, um, if they're willing to go and listen, they will feel how special the place is. Definitely. Thank you for that. And thank you for being um, a strong ally to the folks up there and helping represent when you can. Um, before I let you go, Max, one thing that I'd known has helped out get the message for a lot of these movements has been community radio, um, independent journalists, independent media. Um, this is how we've spread the word through um, a lot of our movements. I believe um, Thacker Pass has been on KPFA numerous times, uh, flashpoints up front, a full circle a couple times. Talk about the importance of community radio and independent journalism to these types of struggles that we have and why it's important to support these independent media outlets. Absolutely. Well, I think media is a, is a site of political struggle, just like anywhere else. And you have a corporate media who are concerned with profits. They're concerned with industry and, and economic growth. And we need a counterpoint to that. So I think it's really important to have 
community media and alternative media that uh, that don't that aren't driven by that profit motive that have the interests of the people and the land at heart and are willing to uh, hold different values and reflect that in the coverage. So I, I really appreciate you having us on and all the work that you all do at, at KPFA. Right on. Uh, thank you, Max Wilbert. Also, um, what's the next steps in the battle at uh, Pahimaha, a.k.a. Thacker Pass, and how can people follow what's going on? Well, people can look up Protect Thacker Pass. We're on social media. We have a website, protectthackerpass.org. Sign up for the email list. We might have to put out a call for urgent support on the ground uh, at some point early next year. We'll see. Uh, the situation is very much in flux, and uh, so we just are urging people to stay tuned and be ready for whatever happens next because we're going to need a lot of help and a lot of support from the community uh, as this fight continues. All right. Thanks again for being there for us, uh, Max Wilbert. Max is a community organizer. He's also a writer. He is the author of the book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. And Max helped launch the Protect Thacker Pass camp back on January 15th. That would be 2021. All right. Thank you, uh, Max, for joining us tonight on Full Circle. Thank you, Franklin. Really appreciate it. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Everyone, please, if you are able to donate to KPFA, go to kpfa.org. That's kpfa.org. You can scroll through all the available gifts or just make a donation. We really appreciate it. If you want to make a call, it's 1-800-439-5732. And you can remember that by remembering 1-800-HEY-KPFA. Again, I really appreciate all the support tonight. Be sure to check our website, kpfaapprentice.org, for all the links and information related to tonight's movements. And also pick up an application to apply for our program. Let me give a big shout out to our special guests tonight, Shaylin Sampson and Max Wilbert and the Full Circle crew. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And again, myself, Freewell and Franklin, I am the technical director for this show, Full Circle, and I have also been your host tonight. Thanks for listening, everyone. And remember, while you're out there, please protect your health and your humanity. And stay tuned to KPFA because up next is Lona Bajita. Good night, everyone. <laughs>